0: Welcome back, everyone, to Out of the Main. Uh, John, how are you this fine day? Uh, I feel so good. <laughs> I just, Sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> I teed you up for that one. Jeez. All right. Well, yeah. yes, we both feel so yeah. good because we are so lucky to be joined by really – A fixture of our youth and he has no idea to what extent we'll probably get into that a little bit but we grew up in a home filled with our guest's music today so we'll get into that and we'll find out what he's doing uh, closer to present day which is real exciting as well so please everyone welcome to the show Mr. Grant Geisman. Grant thank you for being here.
1: Man this is a pleasure
0: thank you. Yeah, and I, really, our pleasure because no lie, John and I, you know, we're brothers as well as co hosts, and we grew up in a musical household and with a, a father who loved music. And if it wasn't the sound of Neil Diamond yeah. or um, maybe uh, Dave Brubeck, it was the sound of Chuck Mangione in the late 70s that just filled our household, didn't it, John? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of
2: funny because I've told the story way, way back on this podcast. While a lot of my friends were getting into the rock and roll stuff and they were listening to Frampton Comes Alive and uh, you know Nazareth and Kiss and all that stuff. I, I didn't let anyone know except for the people in the inner circle. <laughs> but uh, I had uh, my Mangione records. I had my uh, Maynard Ferguson records, early Sanborn stuff. So th- this Mangione stuff is
0: embedded in my brain and in my heart for sure.
1: That's so cool. I love that. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, before we get into it, for those of us uh, who aren't as familiar, let's just give uh, everyone a little sonic context for the sound of Grant Geisman on probably most recognizable Chuck Mangione song. Here's a little Feel So Good. So uh, I think we almost have to start there, Grant, if you don't mind real quick, because we did an episode uh, last season where John and I tried to explore all of quote unquote Yacht Rock's um, catalog to identify the best guitar solos that existed in the genre. And I am so proud to be able to say I am the one that picked Grant Geisman and said, "Listen to this." So, uh, I know you get asked about it all the time, Grant. Um, there's a section on your website, GrantGeisman.net.com.com.com. Dot dot com. Dot com. Oh, I'm sorry, dot .com. So, t- tell us a little bit about how that solo became to be such a fixture in musicdom.
1: Well, it became a fixture because, for some incredible reason, it became you know a giant top forty hit. And so, imagine our surprise when the album version is like nine minutes and 45 seconds, and it starts with this whole Roboto slow thing with just me and Chuck, and then the tempo comes in, and everybody plays the melody, and then we solo, you know, so someone at the record company figured out, hey, if we make this edit and do this, we can get this on the radio, and it became a huge hit, so, you know, and happily... Um, you know, I play half the melody and then it cuts to my second half of the guitar solo. That's what you're hearing, you know, on the 45 that they played on the radio. And, you know... I'm, I'm very flattered that people still talk about it, because you know I've had people say they literally pulled over to the side of the road when the solo came on. It's like, what is this? I have to listen to, you know, harder to this.
2: Well, you know, the, uh, if we have guitar players in the audience, which I know we do, if they go to your site, grantgeisman.com, there's actually even a transcription of that solo, and people can uh, learn it for themselves. Now, Tom, when you pulled it out, though, you were talking
0: specifically about the live version which is even better and it's faster. Wow. That's the beauty of this solo is that there's really kind of three versions. There's the one that we grew up with on the radio. Then there's the actual version from the album. And then there's this live version where if you ever had any question whether there was a lot lot of punching in and studio tricks and could he really pull that off? Oh my God, Grant, that live version is just smoking.
1: (laughs) That's so funny. You know, in those days we weren't, you know, we were kind of a jazz oriented band. So I didn't feel compelled when we did live gigs with Chuck, and we did many of them. Like we were on the road like nine months of the year in those days. But anyway, unless I've sort of felt like it, I didn't feel compelled to play the solo note for note on our live gigs. So what you're talking about, live at the Hollywood Bowl, right. you know, that, uh, they recorded that concert. It was sold out, you know, um, and I just played what I felt like playing. So it's a whole different solo than you hear on the album. But as you say, still kind of fast. Yeah. Did
2: you have to? Uh, did you set the tempo for that? Because obviously, after the rubato section, it kicks in. Were you intentionally, guys, going to play that one faster, or was that just like excitement of the moment?
1: I just think you know we played it so much live that every all the tempos were fast. I hear it now. And it's like, oh my god, you know this is really fast. <laughs> it holds up
2: fast, though. It does a lot of times. Songs it, it that does. go fast, they, they feel rushed. But that one, works. I mean, we
1: were a tight band, so we yeah. just. I just think we just got, you know, whatever, you know. Every gig was exciting, so we just the tempo's just bumped up and up and up, you know?
0: In terms of the recording of that solo, uh, because you talk about this a little bit on your website, um, could you share, like, did you have the solo quote-unquote written in your mind, or was it a jam feel, or was it a combination of it?
1: It was both. It was a combination. What happened was, we went in the studio for two or three days, and Chuck just passed out music of stuff that would become feel-so-good. The songs didn't even have titles yet. It would be like song number five and whatever. So song number five, you know, might have been Feel So Good. And we just, you know, threw ideas around. Why don't you do this? I'll do that. The bass player, Charles Meeks, came up with the bone da doom da doom da -da doom thing in the bridge. None of that was written. We just made all that up. So, you know, we're just doing demos, screwing around. And a lot of the solo that's on the final, you know, album version, a lot of that stuff was what I played on the demo. And then we all just kind of fell in love with what we did on the demo and we all relearned what we did and fixed up what we didn't like. So, you know, the final solo is a combination of that improv thing plus really composition because then I worked out stuff to fill in, you know, the parts I didn't like. Hmm.
2: I know we talked about go- doing some of this stuff in a different order. So, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue down this road for a second because we're talking about the Feels So Good, and then the Live at the Hollywood Bowl album. And the Live at the Hollywood Bowl album, which uh, hold on, hold on. I got, I've got my vinyl copies here for the uh, TV audience uh, to see. I got my Live at the Hollywood Bowl. If this thing now inside, this is one of my favorite live albums. Of all time. And inside all of the documentation, the the little storybook insert that tells about the process and the challenges of putting this on. For those that don't know the album, it is the, the sort of feel so good to Children of Sanchez era of the band and obviously live, but with this full big orchestra. And so all the arranging that goes into all of that. Kind of take us back to what was that like? It feels like it was just this massive event and a whirlwind to getting it all together. And what can
1: you tell us about that? It it was a massive event. Like I say, I think the Hollywood Bowl holds close to 18,000, something just under that somehow, you know, so feel so good as a giant AM radio hit. He sell, you know, Mangione sells out the Hollywood Bowl you know, and we're a very tight touring band. Like I say, we were working all the time. So, um, and some of the brass players would come on for like these smaller kind of quasi orchestra gigs, but they wouldn't have the full string section and stuff. It would be just like the reeds and the brass players. But for the bowl, you know, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know how many people were there, but it's probably at least sixty people on the stage. You know, full string section, percussion guy, our band. Um, you know, brass section, reed section, and and really all the great Hollywood string players of the era, kind of the you know, the cream of the Hollywood crop. That's it right there. That's what the stage looked like. And you know, the orchestra people. I think we only rehearsed the day before for like I don't know, maybe six hours. And then at the bowl, you kind of do a morning sound check, run through whatever, and then then you just go away until the evening. So it wasn't really that much preparation. I mean, we knew what we were doing, but in terms of like, you know, the string players, they saw it for, you know, like they saw it the day before for the first time. Did anyone make a buck at this thing? I mean, you got <laughs> 70 people on
0: stage, like, all right, whatever it is, divided by 70. No, um, well,
1: you know, Chuck was never about the money. If you, if you ever accused him of selling out in some way for money, he would just, you know, rip you a new one, basically, because he was only about the music. So, um, I don't think he cared if he lost money or or made money on that gig. I mean, I think it was the Wally Hyder, you know, uh, recording truck that came. And Mick Gazowski, who's won many Grammys, he was Chuck's engineer. He did Feel So Good and actually all of Chuck's earlier albums. And then my other buddy, Larry Swist, also from Rochester, he was mixing the live sound. So, you know, we had an amazing team that Chuck put together, so...
0: Speaking of that team, I have a question. Um, you know, John and I, because we talked so much about yacht rock and the LA scene and the session musicians, you know, that would back an artist or whatever. Did you, did Chuck conceive of this as a band or Guns for Hire that eventually became a band? How did this concept
1: come together? Kind of both. Uh, We were basically sidemen, but you know. He wanted to take care of his musicians. He actually had a pension plan like if you stayed with the band for you know X number of years, you got a pension and stuff which is really unheard of you know and you hear a lot of bands you know you know, you'd worry if the checks would be there and if you know the guys would be paid. There was never any of that you know we never worried about any of that. so we were sidemen but I you know it, we were kind of also a family.
0: For those years, um, the early years, at least what I'm considering, the the, the frame of reference years. So you had yourself, um, Chris Vidala on what
1: everything Chuck would say is
0: everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Charles Meeks on bass, and uh, James Bradley Jr. on
2: drums right.
1: and percussion and things like that.
0: Yeah, that was the core group, correct?
1: Yeah, and Chuck, yeah. who played flugelhorn and also piano.
2: Chuck often got his stuff lumped in with smooth jazz. Uh, but you guys had that that quartet, or I guess it was five, but the quartet supporting Chuck was such a unique sound. And particularly, I mean, you had a lot of smooth in you, and, and Vidala had a lot of, you know, smooth jazziness. But James on the drums and Charles uh on the bass were very like aggressive kind of players, you know, especially on that live record. It takes on a different feel than what I would call typical, quote, smooth jazz.
1: Yeah, I think I was aggressive too if you listen. I'm you know, what we of, often say is would they even play Feel So Good on smooth jazz radio now? They would not, because there's right. too much activity in the guitar solo. It's too slamming groove-wise and whatever. Yes, it's melodic, and you know you could sing along with it, uh, the melody if you want, but we were just going for it. There was no, you know, um, like I say, there was no thought about this is we're going to get this on the radio or anything like that. We were just playing what we thought the thing should right. be.
2: Yeah, that sort of came later. Um, well, one more solo question. I sent you this earlier because I've always had this one sort of in my back pocket. I want to make sure you at least had a chance to sort of remember what it was. And one of my favorite solos, Tom, I, I didn't even talk to you about this one, but from the Fun and Games album, one of the more mellow songs on there, I never missed someone before. And and this solo, uh, Grant uses steel string uh, acoustic for the solo. Which seems like, okay, on a mellow song, that might be an obvious choice. But man, when you go after that thing, there are times that I swear you are going to bust through that guitar. It's a real, speaking of aggressive, it's an incredible solo in the, in the performance, but also in so unexpected when you start digging into it.
1: I actually had to go back and listen to that again. I didn't remember that song particularly well. Um and I was surprised. I you know, I didn't remember that Charles Meeks played harmonica on that tune and um you know, like you say I I did I played acoustic guitar solo which was an overdub and then the kind of rhythm track you know was my electric Gibson L5 which I played in and all the Chuck stuff. But yeah, I was I surprised myself in re-listening to it, that it's very bluesy, you know, very aggressive. I was, you know, bending strings, going for it. So I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I always could play bluesy. You know, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and before we use that as a natural segue
0: to your new record, I just want one more blast from the past off the Hollywood Bowl album because you brought up um, the notion of whether you were aggressive. John, if you could key, uh, cue up I Get Crazy. Oh, yeah. And start at like two minutes and five seconds, and listen to what uh, what Grant blazes through here.
1: I navigated that key change yeah. okay.
3: Wow! Yeah.
2: <laughs> Absolutely filthy. Had yeah, a kick drum from James on that.
1: Woo,
0: love it. Everyone's a little aggressive right Dang, there. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. What I wouldn't give to go back in time and yeah, be that in show. that building. Oh my god. Well, but it's we not a building.
1: It's an open air yeah, amphitheater, old, Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, know?
0: Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but well. We mentioned a segue because you talked about your uh, you were bluesy back then, and you are certainly bluesy in the year 2022, because you have a new album out um, spelled the way I would spell blues, <laughs> B-L-O-O-Z, and it's a bluesy instrumental that's actually been nominated for a Grammy for what, Best Instrumental? Best. It's called Best
2: Contemporary Instrumental Album. And uh, do you know who the other nominees are at this point? Uh,
1: I don't know all of them, but there's some pretty good competition, so... <laughs> Oh, I'm sure, yeah. My fingers are crossed. But, uh, you know, I've done 16 albums of my own over the years since my first one came out in 1978, and this is the first nomination I've ever got. So I'm extremely happy and grateful, you know, to be in this position, to be nominated. So, I mean, maybe I finally made a good album. I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, I'm very happy, though. Yeah.
2: Well, it's not your only uh, major award nomination now, is it? Because one of the other things that people that I didn't even know about Grant and I just learned researching for this interview is how much music you've written for TV. And obviously our YouTube audience can see behind him. He's got the Two and a Half Men uh, poster on display. But Uh, Grant has written music for shows, uh, one called Be Positive that I'm not familiar with, but also Mike and Molly. You played on the theme for Monk, I guess, is that right? And then your Emmy nomination for Two and a Half Men.
1: um, Yeah, I co-wrote the theme to Two and a Half Men, and and with my writing partner, Dennis C. Brown, we did the music for all 12 seasons. So it was an incredible job, just super fun. And by the way, the longest steady job I've ever had. (laughs) Well, you are a musician. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. But it was just super fun, you know, because, um, you know, Charlie Sheen played a jingle writer on the show, so there was always somebody singing something, or he would be sitting at the piano trying to write a silly little tune, or, you know, it was always this kind of goofy stuff to do, and it was really fun.
2: And you had to write all of those little thingies yeah, he was
3: screwing Yeah, pretty with.
1: much all of them. Sometimes the writers would give us the goofy lyrics, and we would set those to music. Some, A few of the tunes, actually the co-creator of the show, Chuck Lorre, he he actually wanted to be a songwriter starting out. So he gave us, you know, words and music to those things, and we just kind of produced them for the show and whatever. But super fun.
2: My actual daytime job since 95 has been composing music for commercials and now film and uh, trailers and things like that. So anytime I tell somebody what I do for a living, they all go like, oh, you're like Charlie Sheen on Two and a Half Men. Well, now I know who the writer for Charlie Sheen is. Yeah,
1: so you're yeah you're more like Frank Geisman. And the funny thing is, you know, Charlie didn't play piano at all. They never showed his hands. So a lot of the time, it, it was me kind of behind the curtain, you know, playing piano. Because, you know, it, it's a comedy show. So they'd have to weave the piano music or whatever in between dialogue. So you couldn't always pre-record it.
2: Was that done in front of an audience?
1: Yeah, I'd be playing live on stage. You know, they, nobody would see me, but I'd be back back. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know? (laughs) And uh, sometimes it was my writing partner, Dennis C. Brown, playing. But I think more often than not, it was me back there. So I can play piano good enough to sound like Charlie Sheen.
2: (laughs) There you go. Well, I wouldn't say the bar is high, but...
0: (laughs) Well, and I always thought you were like Charlie Sheen, too. I mean, quite winning, John. Oh, yeah, right. I'm winning. Uh, Uh, But let's. I want to go back to the blues album real quick, because as somebody who grew up listening to what we just played earlier, um, you wouldn't necessarily know that you're also prolific in a blues style, which is a different style, at least for a non-guitar player like me. So, uh, what led you to make this album in this style in this at this point in your career?
1: Well, you know, as we discovered, I, I always liked that kind of bluesy style, but really the impetus for me was I don't know, the last many years, you know, decade plus I've been hanging out at Norm's Rare Guitars Norman's Rare Guitars here in LA. I bought a lot of great instruments from Norm and You know, every guitar player that goes in there plays some kind of bluesy thing. And, you know, I met a lot of great players hanging out at Norm's. Um, I met Joe Bonamassa there. I met Josh Smith there. I met a guitar player named John Jorgensen, who's just a great musician there. Um, I knew Robin Ford, you know, from years ago. But um, actually, Norm put Robin and I together to do this kind of sort of benefit for the Midnight Mission downtown. And uh, Norm asked Robin and I to put a little band together to go play for some homeless people down at the Midnight Mission one afternoon. And we did that, and I got you know got to know Robin a little better. And I actually wrote the, a tune for that occasion called Robin's Hood, which Robin and I play on my new blues album. So, you know, there's a big Norm connection that runs through the whole project, so... That's kind of the what you know put the thought in my mind.
0: Well let's hear a little something off it. Why don't we uh, play John a little bit of the opening track? This is uh, called Preach and it features a yachty personnel member by the name of Randy Brecker.
1: Great. Randy sounds so good on this. <music>
0: Yeah, and I mentioned uh, I mentioned uh, Yacht Rock personnel. So also Tom Scott, uh, Russell Ferrante. So uh, there's your Yacht Rock connection if we needed one. Yeah, and in true Yacht Rock fashion, you know, I know every once in a
2: while we've been digging through the personnel. And every once in a while Grant's name would come up, but not very often, you know. But you have done uh, – I have a, like a short list of some of the sessions that you've done for Peter Allen, um, Sheila E., I got Diane Schurr. Uh, Van Dyke Parks, Kiko Matsui. Now nah, that's cool. Uh, David Benoit, uh, Tiffany, Paula Abdul, Robbie Williams. I mean, so there's quite a list there.
1: Yeah, I'm just kind of, you know, over the years, I was like a gun for hire. So you, I also got to play on a Ringo album. Um, oh, oh wow. <laughs> one day they called me up. I'm pretty sure Joe Walsh was not available. And they said, can you play Slide <laughs> Dobro? And I'm like, yeah. You know, so I went over to uh, Mark Hudson's studio and played on one track on Ringo Rama, uh, that Ringo album. So, you know, I'm a huge Beatle fan. That's one of the reasons I even picked up the guitar. So that was kind of surreal. And then I actually got to play with Ringo. We did this Klaus Vormann kind of DVD project, sort of a celebration of all the stuff Klaus Vormann has done. You know, the bass player that played with Lennon, he also drew the Revolver album cover. He was an early Beatles confidant. Anyway, um, Van Dyke Parks got me onto this project with Klaus. And so there I am playing live with Van Dyke Parks and Klaus Vorman and Ringo Starr and Jim Keltner. And it's like, how does this happen? Wow. You know, so that was Ooh, that wow. was a great couple days. You know, um,
0: one thing I've learned in the last uh, week or so is just extremely you know John just mentioned all the different styles and the artists that you mentioned from Paul Abdul and Tiffany to you know um, how versatile you are and how comfortable you seem in every genre Um, the the album uh, Bop what is it Bop Bang Boom from 2012 let's listen to a little bit of Boom from that because now you're in a funky space which obviously we heard funk you know stylings back in the Mangione era but check out a little of this tune Tell us about that project. So, I, I when I look at your solo career, just you know, in total, it feels like it's mostly focused on jazz, right? Is that yeah. accurate? But then you'll have uh, these departures.
1: Well, yeah, kind of jazz. I'm, it's it, it's what you say. I kind of do. I'm sort of a jack of many trades. You know, I I I grew up, you know, playing British invasion stuff in the garage. Then I played jazz stuff in high school, and I studied jazz. And but I've always been a little schizophrenic. I like to do it all. You know. So that's where my approach comes from. And also being a child of the 60s, you know, it was extremely musically wide in those days. I mean, you yeah. could hear Burt Bacharach tune next to The Who, next to, you know, what, The Stones, next to The Beatles, next to Dusty Springfield. You know, so it's like, in my mind, there shouldn't be all these kind of segmented categories. It's just all music and you can pull from one thing or another. So... Yeah, I'm sort of
2: guilty of really, you know, up to now only knowing you through the lens of the uh, Mangione years, and so I associate you very closely, as you mentioned earlier, with that hollow body uh, Gibson. But then I go on your website and I see you holding a Les Paul. I see a flying V. Like, okay, (laughs) there's there's more going on here than I even realized. Then I dig a little bit further, and and, Tom, I hope we can go here now. Um, (laughs) But you're also a writer books, but specifically, and I know that our audience is of a certain age, that they can appreciate this, that you are the, like the most avid uh, collector or something of Mad Magazine. So that is, you want to talk about my youth, waiting for that next <laughs> Mad Magazine to come out. Now, tell us about how this all came about.
1: Well, Mad Magazine is something, it actually predates, you know, my guitar player or anything. I, I was turned on to Mad Magazine, I think I was about eight years old, I'd already been into comic books, you know, Superman and Batman and stuff like that. This is, we're talking early 60s, like 61 or so. That'll, you know, no, no secret how old I am. But, um, but then I had some kids and, and they had this thing called Mad Magazine and they showed it to me. And I was like, what is this? You know, it was, <laughs> just looks so weird and different. And, and I'm like, you know, they go, oh, it's Mad. You know, it's funny. You should check it out. And I go, well, well where did you get this? And they go, you know, down the drugstore. And then I was like, they would sell this to me? You know, I was like, (laughs) yeah, you know. So that's how it started, you know. And then I I collected. And then I also became interested a little later in the 60s, like around 1967, into what's called EC Comics, which is like Tales from the Crypt and Weird Science and Vault of Horror. And um, they also published Mad, which actually started out as a comic book. So... I was a comic collector even way back then. And then I, you know, I collected on and off, um, you know, kind of put MAD down for a while, got into National Lampoon and stuff like that later, you know. But then, you know, in later years, I decided I'm going to try to collect every issue of MAD Magazine, number one, and then also try to collect all the kind of ancillary stuff. Like they made t-shirts and buttons and little busts of Alfred E. Newman and records and all kinds of stuff. So I did that, and I assembled a very large collection. And then I actually, I was playing with David Benoit at Carnegie Hall, I think this is around 1988 or so. And uh, the bass player in the band, we started talking about Mad Magazine, and he goes, well, I think you can just go down there, and they'll give you a tour. And we're in New York, and I'm (laughs) like, okay. So we just walked into Mad Magazine, and they kind of showed us around, and and I had brought some pictures of some of my collection, and the guy that was showing us around goes, "Oh, you got to go in and meet Bill Gaines. You're a real collector." So Bill Gaines is the publisher. Anyway, long story short, I met Bill Gaines. You know, I have had a complete collection of EC Comics, and then I proposed a book that was essentially the history of EC Comics and Mad Magazine as shown through their own collectibles. And that book came out in I think 90, 1995, and it's called Collectibly Mad. And then since then, I've actually written five books related to Mad Magazine and the EC Comics. And the most recent one came out in 2020, published by Tashin. It's one of those giant coffee table books that they do called The History of EC Comics. And it actually, it looks like this.
2: Woo! Woo. Oh, wow. And and that got nominated for something. I don't know what's... Uh, yeah, it, says it, got, it got nominated Award. for an
1: Eisner Award, which is essentially the Grammy or Oscar of the comic book industry. This thing is like 15 and a half inches high, and uh, it weighs about 13 pounds. So it's close to 600 pages, and it's the complete history of EC Comics and goes into Mad Magazine years and stuff like that. So, Did Uh-oh. you
2: manage to... Uh... Get a hold of every Mad Magazine uh, issue? Or are you still missing a few?
1: Yeah, I have a complete collection of Mad Magazine, every issue ever published. Wow. And, um, wow. Yeah.
0: But yeah, that was the other fixture of our youth growing up, was Mad Magazine. So what what, the, what do they call the thing at the back where you fold it in?
1: Drawn by Al Jaffe, who's about... He's still alive, Al Jaffe. He's, he's like something like nine uh, 102 or something. And he only wow. fairly recently, like the last couple years retired from doing those fold-ins.
0: Dang!
1: Yeah, it's inc- it's incredible. What about your favorite
0: artist, John, with the, the glitch and all those uh, uh, onomatopoeia oh, words? Oh, Don Martin,
1: yeah. I spent
2: way too many hours of my youth learning to draw Don Martin pictures, for sure. And I could still do it to this day. So I may draw one, and we can post it when we post this episode.
1: You know, the funny thing about the Two and a Half Men co- connection, John Cryer is also a big comics fan. He collects... Um, like Marvel Comics art, Jack Kirby and stuff like that. And one day he goes, hey, you know what's funny? There's two Grant Geismans. I just ordered this book called Foul Play, and it's written by this guy Grant Geisman. And I'm like, John, (laughs) that's me. That's (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, my
0: gosh. Um, Well, going back to blues real quick, because we do have a Grammy Award ceremony coming up. Um, I'd like to play a little off uh something else off of it. Um we might as well grab the Tom Scott track since I'm a huge t- Tom there Scott fan. John you wanna play a little bit of fat back? Or is it fat back? How do you say that, Grant?
1: <laughs> I I d I didn't hear the difference. <laughs> 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 All right. All right. Play well it. Here it
0: is. There's no words anyway, right? So, uh, yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so if we have any uh, any of the Grammy voting. People that listen to this show, get out and cast your vote for blues. B L O O Z, the way you would have learned it if you grew up reading Mad Magazine. That's probably how you learned to spell blues.
1: That's right. And it's in the category of best contemporary instrumental album.
0: It's very good. It's very good. What is on the horizon for Grant Guysman? What's next? You're very active and busy. Book or music?
1: I am busy. Let's see. I've got a few irons in the fire, you know. I'd like to, you know, do some more live gigs. We did a live album release party for blues uh in September at this beautiful theater in North Hollywood called the El Portal with my band. And um, Tom Scott was the guest for that. And uh, we actually shot that show. And um, we need to put that together and see if we can, you know, put stuff on YouTube or maybe do a, some kind of DVD. We haven't got that far yet. But, you know, that's probably the next thing. And then yeah. Grammy Award season, you know, Grammy Award's coming up. So I'll be there. So we'll see. Fingers are crossed, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, if you win, that's a good excuse to have you back. There that's you go. Sure. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, that's good enough for us anyway. Um, before we let you go, John, and I don't know what else you have, but nope. I, I, gotta, I never thought I'd have this opportunity, oh. but Grant, Grant, you're familiar with the expression that... Um, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I am. I know that phrase. Okay. Well, keep keep that in mind. Um, so if we could, for context purposes, play the very end, John, of um, Feel So Good from the Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Because there's a very interesting way that that song ends. And it became, again, it became part of folklore in our house because I'm a bass player. My older brother is a bass player. John was a drummer right. at the time. And we just fell in love with the way that this ended. And John, do you have it queued up? Uh, uh, well, almost. There's that superfluous pop note at the end of the you know the the triple snare hit, and we were always imitating that <laughs> in our household. Well, fast forward to around 1990 or so, and I've got a band that we're trying to you know pursue a career in music, and we're sort of a fusion between funk and the emerging alternative sound of the time. Right. So, think 1990. John's recording our record. We're putting together a demo, and we've got this funk song that has this big sort of live ending. And John and I don't know if it was you who came up with the idea or if it was me (laughs) let's do the feel so good ending but and so let's play a little of that all right here it comes
1: (laughs) that's great i love that
3: the, the pop.
0: Was that a fixture in the set or was that something that he just pulled off I one? I think he night? just
1: did that. I don't I don't remember him doing that necessarily every <laughs> night. I think he just it's lived you know, forever for He us. was just going for it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh imitation, the sincerest form of flattery. So legendary in our house, and in my band, too. Great. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. So, last question, Grant, about blues. Is there a particular moment that you're uh, particularly proud of that you want to make sure our listeners hear when they go listen to the record? Well,
1: I love all of it, you know, but for a guitar player, probably one of the most fun things that we did there's a track called One G and Two J's, which is me, Joe Bonamassa, and Josh Smith. And the, I wrote the melody in three part harmony for three guitars. And then we all take a solo and then we kind of have this little trade slash battle at the end and uh, I think guitar nerds are gonna like that particularly well
2: (laughs) all right we'll hit it
0: we've got guitar nerds among us <laughs> so do, cool. uh, very, very good very cool awesome well cool well congratulations on this new record it's fantastic it's something I did not expect to hear um, you know such a blues centered sound from you but it's absolutely stunning um, good luck with the Grammys and um, come back and tell us how happy you are that you won in uh, February and then we'll talk about
1: what's next that sounds great to me alright great thanks yeah, thanks a lot right. Tom and John thanks for having me on it's been really fun
0: Well, that was a uh, fantastic interview, was it not?
2: Man, if I knew back when I was a 10, 11, 12-year-old listening to that stuff, some of my friends didn't
0: know, and I was secretly listening, if I knew that I was going to get to talk to one of those cats, woo, baby. <laughs> Especially with, like, we told him how much we grew up listening to that music in the house. It's I like, know, I don't think he realizes to what degree. I don't know if we... We may have even undersold that, because
2: this yeah. was... I mean, Mangione stuff, is, and to this day, is still a centerpiece in my
0: house, man. It uh, didn't you and listener Mike's high school jazz band try to pull off one of their tunes? Was it Children yeah. Of Sanchez? Yeah,
2: we did Children Sanchez. Yeah, and that, that's so. a, a tough one. But we played it at uh, an award uh, thing, like one of those competitions, and we did. Won, you win?
0: Yeah, we won states that year. So nice, yeah. nice. Well, like uh, you know, my biggest uh, well, two things takeaways for me. One is. I really had no idea to what degree he was going to be as versatile as he is throughout his entire catalog because I only knew him kind of through the Chuck Mangione lens, right? which I didn't want to bring this up because I didn't want to misstate it. But the degree to which he maintained consistency without redundancy throughout that stretch of his catalog is just amazing because it all feels cohesive, but he's never repeating ideas. Yes, I totally agree with that.
2: Uh, to to some degree, when you listen to the Mangione stuff, and he sort of alluded to it, that there is, there's only so much you can do from a roadmap perspective. They tended to use the same roadmap multiple times. And maybe yep. that's why eventually the whole Mangione thing sort of ran out of gas eventually. But I mean, they had several albums that were just... Top notch, but when you're dealing with instrumental stuff, and they did, they would play the melody, then the next instrument would play the melody, then each would solo, and then we'd come back, and the melody would be played in some sort of two part unison slash harmony, was pretty commonly used. But what else are you going to do?
0: Well, that was sort of a, a jazz constriction, yes, right? You're right. Which we're, yeah, which we talked about, but yeah, um, yeah in uh, context, because I was eight years old at the time, and you were a little bit older. Is it true in my recollection that sort of Mangioni? He may have not pioneered this idea, but sort of mainstreamed this idea of like a jazz solo artist breaking over into pop music? Yes. I would say
2: what... I always called it instrumental pop, and I think there's some people that still do. That's how I differentiate it from smooth jazz or just jazz of the era, which would (laughs) have been, obviously, much more improvisational-based. This stuff was a lot more melodic-based, going back to the whole original concept of what we called yacht jazz. So it wasn't just, give me a four-bar riff, and we'll play that a couple times, and then we'll solo for 12 minutes. I mean, this stuff had song, verse, chorus sort of shapes to it, and so... Manjoni was doing it I would say to some degree Maynard Ferguson's stuff at the time was doing that
0: probably
2: Herb Alpert. um mm, Well Herb yeah, Alpert he was the rise right Yeah yeah
0: Sanborn I mean that me, would be yep, in there Sanborn.
2: and then of course I uh, would uh, probably put also Spyrogyra to some degree in there not all of their stuff but like a song like Morning
0: Dance certainly fits in with this exact same mode Yeah yep Cool. Well, and then the last quick thing is just a, a comment that it's amazing when you get to interview these folks that the stuff that you don't know about them is sometimes even more interesting than the stuff that you do know about them. And this is a perfect example of that. Mad Magazine. Man, another <laughs> slice of my youth, boy. And God. writing for TV and all this. And Paul, yeah. like go look at his website, com. Check out his discography because you'll just be blown away. Yeah, I'm going to touch on a little
2: on. of that in the lightning round, too. So,
0: All right. Well, very good. Let's get into the lightning rounds, right. shall we? All right. So, I guess I'll start with uh, Does it float okay. your boat? I'm curious where you stand as a general rule about instrumentals in nature. Do you, are do instrumentals just, you know, right. by their very nature, do you have any problem keeping them as what you would consider yacht rock? I'm looking at just real quick, you know, the, Feel so good was the highest rated song from Chuck Mangione by the guys, and it was forty four point right. five, so Near not even certified. But like, so so yachty to me. I, I don't, I can't, and don't see a problem with instrumentals. Well, do you? I didn't
2: at first when we first got into this. I, I had the, the same things. I don't care whether it has vocals or not. Somehow, over the period of these few years, I've evolved to a point where it just they they feel like they fit adjacently you know but not quite like when they come okay. on it, my, my test is always when it comes on in the Yacht Rock playlist do I feel a sense of we've taken a detour and I do with those okay. whether it be Morning Dance even Rise or Feel So Good breezen, all of those just for whatever reason take me to a place that it doesn't feel maybe because there's no lyrics in there so they can't mention a fool
0: maybe that's the problem <laughs> Well, Breezin, by the way, got a 90 from JD, personally. So I just, uh, Mm. whatever. I I still am of the mind where, to me, it's an instrumental. I still love it. It, Particularly, you mentioned, I go by the feels. So I got one. This goes back to probably months, if not years ago, The listener Kyle was in a mood one morning and played (laughs) Give It All You Got. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I had no idea because I didn't really know Kyle that well at the time, but I didn't realize just to what degree music brings him joy. Yes. And this song was bringing him joy that day. And uh, I could see why. So- um, we talked about this song give it all you Got when we did an episode on best solos not guitar related and we <laughs> loved on uh, Chris uh, sax saxo yep and we stopped just short of playing Grant Geisman's guitar solo so that's I'm gonna cue you up to about three minutes 58 seconds and let's listen to a little Grant Geisman in give it all you Got.
2: It. Oh man, it's such a good, <laughs> good sounding record, which actually will tie into uh, to my um, submission for this. But uh, before we get there, it's that album uh, w- when that came out because obviously that song was written intended as a submission or was for the nineteen eighty Olympics, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, it was. Yep.
2: Um, I, I just couldn't get over the intimacy of the recording, how close everything felt. Just amazing recording.
0: Yep. Absolutely. And it reminded me, you know, it's not a buried treasure, but when he posted that song, it's like, why can't this song get more love on like the compilations in Sirius XM? It's just as good. It's just as popular. Maybe not as popular, but everyone knows it. Anyways. Well, that ties
2: me to the Mick Gazowski thing, because Mick Gazowski, as uh, Grant mentioned, was... Uh, the engineer, mixer for the band during that particular era. I mean, so much to the point where even in the liner notes on the back of the Feels So Good album, you can see he's kind of credited as a band member because he was so essential to it. Well, if you recall, going way, way, way back now, this is almost like so lost at sea, it's like a message in a bottle. Um, When we (laughs) talked to the guys at Yacht Rock Miami, one of the songs that we discussed was from Daft Punk. Fragments yeah, of Time. For sure. Now, if we go back to how that album was made, when Daft Punk wanted to make that album, they were had been, and still are to a degree, a electronica band. So they were using a lot of synthesizer type of things. For mm-hmm. this album, they wanted to take on a new approach, and they wanted to continue to still be the electronica band in terms of being loop-based and remix-based and all that stuff. But they wanted to start with real-sounding instrumentation, and they wanted to do a nod to this 70s, 80s era. And they specifically brought in somebody who they thought could get the perfect 70s-80s clean recordings that they wanted for guitars and drums to start as their building blocks for then making these remixes, which would be that album. And the person they brought in was Mick Gazowski. Ah. So there's your Mangione tie-in. Yes. But, of course, they also used other... um, Yachty personnel in that, too. I mean, uh, well, the, the main one would be Nile Rodgers, even though I wouldn't call him Yachty personnel. But J.R. Robinson plays on the record. Nathan East plays on it. Omar Hakim, Paul Jackson Jr., Chuck Finley is in there, Gary Grant. Wow. It, it's amazing. But um, I'm going to just play the hit, you know? you You say it all the time. Hey, man, play the hit. So I'm just going to play a little bit of Get Lucky.
0: I did not expect that that was going to be the one you picked. Good, too. It just reminded me of that conversation
2: and the Mick Gazowski thing, and I thought that all sort of ties together because his recording quality is also a big part of what makes those records so enjoyable to listen to.
0: Absolutely. The only, I'd only disagree with one word out of everything that you said. The? Nope. Okay. R. Oh. Because Daft Punk uh, hung it up uh, last year or the year before. They did. They are no more, yes. Oh, boy. So, anyways, but that's a great pick. Uh, Cool. How many times did the Who retire? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, so now I guess I'm putting a question back to you similar to the question you had. Knowing everything you know now, which I guess you maybe already did, about how this stuff was put together, that even though they use these known players, uh, organic – initial recordings. Essentially, it really still was an electronica uh, remix approach to assembling these songs. Knowing all of that, does it or does it not feel yachty? Because I think at one time we maybe thought Fragments of Time felt yachty.
0: And I don't really anymore. Right. Um... Even knowing what I know, but sorry, the fact that I do know all of the Spangioni connection does kind of temper my thoughts a little bit. And what's interesting is I, I feel like Fragments of Time feels, yes, less Yachty to me now than it did back then, which is a, you know, it's a 68 on the Onsky scale. But whereas I didn't think Get Lucky sounded at all. Yeah, and I'm starting to come yeah. around on that well, one because of the R&B. I played that one only because we had the other one on our list before. So right, yeah. So I I don't know if I answered your question. I guess a little bit it does, but um, yeah, it's interesting too. Just real quick on Daft Punk because I told you they they broke up. Um, is that Daft Punk? I think was all samples aside from this album. They construct their music almost exclusively through yes. samples. And but for this album, they decided they were actually going to play. Well, music, those became really the cool. samples.
2: Or, they just decided to create right. those in a certain yeah, different their way. Yeah, create own samples, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. interesting.
2: Um, all right, buried treasure, sir. What have you? Well, we talked about him as a session guy in the, the diversity. I went and sort of dug through some of the things that he played on, some of those names, and I found a solo of his that is pure fire. This is Grant in his sort of uh, maybe Neil Sean, like, Anthemic rock guy just wailing on a song by Tiffany. So he played with <laughs> Tiffany in 1988. He actually has a song on that record that's just him on acoustic guitar called Overture. But the one I want to play is this uh, sort of power ballad uh, called Hearts Never Lie. And we're going to go straight to Grant's Raging Pure Fire guitar solo after I also mention that Tommy Funderburk is on this as backup vocal. So it has a Yachty tie in. Hit it now! Yeah!
0: Well, it's good that you threw in the Thunderbird connection at the end because I'm like, this is off the map. What are you doing? But it's buried, it's Grant that is the buried treasure within the Trinity catalog. True, true, true. All right. Well, I will see your buried treasure and raise you a buried treasure. Okay. And that is, you know, it's funny. When I go back and listen to the Man those that three-record run, you always talk about three-record run, but yeah, that's um, right. That's the that's the run, right? Um, but all of the songs sound like hits to me because we were so, it was like ubiquitous. We yeah. heard we the know music all the time. We know them all. Yep. So this is, I don't think you could consider it a hit, but this is off fun and games. Yep. Uh, and the buried treasure again is the guitar solo. That is at 146 of the tune. You're the best. There is. What a beautiful use of space and then tone and mix and reverb.
2: Yes.
3: Oh, man.
0: It, what's not to be missed, too, is the the Charles Meek sound underneath it. The bass is just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Mm. All right. Uh, off the map? Off the map. Well, I'm going to go back to the Grammy-nominated Grant Geisman record out in 2022 called Blues, and I'm going to try to keep it yachty. Because I'm going to feature another song off that album that has Tom Scott on sax. And this one is called This and That. Chicago blues style, there, huh? Yeah, a little swinging thing. Yeah, nice. Woo. It was cool to hear that he's still performing live with Tom Scott. Like, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, not to date anyone, but like we're talking 1978 to 2022, that's 44 years in there. So, mm. Eesh. do the math stuff, man. Yeah, all right, one more off the map. Perfect. Uh, this,
2: I got one more, and I'm going. <laughs> seems like we're going back to that fun and games album a lot, but I love. The song out there called Pina Colada, and it is no <laughs> no connection whatsoever to the Pina Colada song. But what I love about Pina Colada is that it starts like this. Oh,
3: <the
0: <kids> and, uh-huh.
2: and then turns into this. <unloading> oh,
0: is what you call filthy?
3: Ooh.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you what, revisiting this catalog again just reminded me I think I got to put Charles Meek's maybe in my top 5 of bass players. Ooh, filthy! Ooh. <laughs> I w- the part of the reason is is because you spend so much time listening to Chuck or uh you know Grant that you forget about everything else. The drummer's amazing too. Yeah, yeah, James Bradley Jr. on the drums. Yeah, so. Well, all right. Well, this was uh, a fine how do you do, as they say. Uh, really good interview. Enjoyed it. The only thing I got a little bit nervous about is when you brought up Charlie Sheen and then I kind of brought up winning. Do you remember the crazy things that Charlie Sheen was saying in that interview? Uh, No, I tried to ignore Charlie Sheen to the best of my ability, but TV wouldn't
2: always allow it. But
0: Yeah, well, that means it just <laughs> went viral. Yeah. I mean, here he is in the middle of an interview and out of the blue, he just says, Ahoy, Poloy.